Turn, if you would, to the 8th chapter of the book of Matthew. We just sang Victory in Jesus, which reminded me that I have apparently failed as a parent. At uh, Easter lunch at my mother's house, my mother wanted me to lead us in singing Victory in Jesus, and two of my children said they had never heard of it before. (laughs) How can that happen? It's one of the few songs that I actually know the tenor part by memory. Two weeks ago, we finished off the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. At the end of the sermon, it says the people were astounded because he spoke as one who had authority. He had the authority to tell people what to do. Now, we know that that authority comes from the fact that he is the creator of the universe, that he is, in fact, God. And we began chapter 8 last week, and we commented that chapters 8 and chapters 9, Matthew is demonstrating to us the authority that Jesus really has. He begins with a discussion of some healings, and we will have more of those today. We had a discussion about authority with the centurion who came to Jesus and said, My servant is sick, will you heal him? And Jesus said, Sure, I'm coming with you. And the centurion says, no, 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 you don't need to come. I know what authority means. I know that all you do is give an order and you expect that order to be carried out. You don't need to come to my house. You just need to declare him to be healed. And Jesus was amazed at the, at the, at the faith that this individual, a pagan, had. So the servant was healed. Then they got in a boat And they were out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the storm came up and Jesus was sound asleep. And the disciples were terrified. They were convinced they were going to drown. And they turned to Jesus and they said, wake up, don't you care? And I just imagine, you know, Jesus, you know, waking up in this fog like I wake up. You go, what? What's happening? There's a horrible storm. So? And he turns to the storm and he says, stop. He just commands it, and it stops. And all of a sudden, the disciples who were terrified of the storm are terrified because they've got somebody in the boat who can tell the storm to stop, which is a pretty remarkable thing. So we're going to continue today with more demonstrations of Jesus' authority over fill-in-the-blank, i.e. everything. So we're picking up in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, this would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Let's just stop right there for a moment. We as 21st century Americans don't like even talking about the idea of demons. It's like, well, that's something that they used to believe way back then. Much less do we want to talk about people being demon-possessed. We're perfectly comfortable talking about people having uh, mental problems, you know, having issues. But we don't want to talk about people being demon-possessed. I am not sure that I've ever personally met an individual who I believed was demon-possessed, but it is quite possible we have and just didn't know it. The Bible is very clear that you have angels 
Angels are created beings. They are not God. They are created beings. The angels split. Some fell when they followed Satan, the devil. And those fallen angels are demonic beings. Number one, they do exist. They existed here. They exist today. Why don't we see more of their influence today? Maybe we're just blind to it, number one. Maybe we're so messed up, the demons don't even have to bother with us. It's just a possibility. I don't know. It is also quite possible that at the point in history where Jesus Christ came to the earth, the devil himself knew that there was a huge battle going on, and all the demonic forces said, it's either now or it's never, let's go fight. So it is quite possible that at this point in history, there was more demonic activity than there are at normal times. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, you remember The Screwtape Letters? It's the letters from one demon to another demon telling him how to tempt people. C.S. Lewis said it was the easiest book he ever wrote because he just thought of all the bad things you could do, and that's what he did. But in the introduction, he says we have two problems, two potential problems when we discuss demons. One is to pretend they don't exist. And the second is to pretend they have too much power. I talked to a young lady once who was convinced everything bad in the universe was caused by a demon. You've got the flu, you've got the flu of the, the demon of flu. You have this problem, you have the demon of that. You have this problem, and all we needed to do was cast out that demon, and voila, the flu would go away. And I don't think so. But, but, we know, we know that there are demonic forces, we know that they try to influence people's lives, and we know that certain people have allowed themselves or permitted themselves to be possessed by demons. And that's what we're dealing with right here. Yes? One time I stepped out of the room and did a series on it. I was praying for a lady and I didn't know what was going on, but mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden I just heard like a man all unclean spirit to move and do the series. And it convinced him or they said this to get a pill. Hmm. And, then, uh, and then when she came to, she goes, What did you do? <laughs> That's amazing. Very good. So, there are two demon-possessed men living in the graveyard. Somehow that seems appropriate. But they were so terrifying, they were so strong, that the community stayed away. They, they didn't know what to do with them. It's interesting because we have the same story covered in Mark and Luke in probably greater detail. And it says that they tried to chain one of them down, and it didn't do any good. He was too strong. With the power of the demon within him, they, they couldn't constrain him. So we have two demons living in the graveyard. That's the picture. And behold, they cried out when they saw Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Now, this is a phenomenal statement, if you think about it. Let's, I mean, let's picture this. We're going to have a discussion in just a moment, once again, about the scribes and the Pharisees. We've talked about them before. We're going to talk about them for the whole book of Matthew until we get over there and Jesus just lets them have it. They are the religious leaders. They are the people responsible for communicating religious truth to the people. And what are they doing? They're rejecting Jesus. Remember last week's story? I really like this story. Jesus heals the man who has leprosy. And he tells the guy, don't tell anybody except go to the priest and tell the priest you had leprosy and you are now healed. Now let's think about that. You're the priest. You have never, ever, ever in your life had somebody cured of leprosy. And this guy shows up. It's like Jesus is sending his calling card. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. This proves it. And they rejected him. Here we have two demons who say, I know exactly who you are. I mean, we have the physical world that we occupy. And we have the spiritual world which we occupy. But in the spiritual world, the spiritual beings, be they the angels who proclaim the birth of Jesus or the demonic forces who, when they encounter Jesus, go, I know who you are. There's no question. There's no discussion. We spend our lives discussing who was Jesus. And the demon shows up and says, I know who you are. What do you want from me? You son of man, what do you want? Do you come to torment us before the appointed time? They knew who he was, and they knew that judgment was coming. They knew there was going to be a time where they were going to be judged because of who they were and what they had done. What is our biggest problem in evangelism today? Convincing people who Jesus is and convincing them that judgment is coming. Even the demons understand this stuff. And they say, Jesus, are you here to bug us before the, right t- the end of time? Are you here to judge us now? Is that what you're doing here? Because they knew it was coming. O oh, Son of God... Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, if you're going to do that, send us into the herd of pigs. Now this is kind of strange. First off, you have to understand that we are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, All the good Jews are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. All the Gentiles are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, so they're raising pigs. I don't think there's a whole lot of pig farmers on the west side. I could be wrong. There's pagans everywhere, right? So they're over here on the east side of the Sea of Galilee raising pigs. And the demons say, if you're going to cast us out, I find this fascinating. I don't know, it's just me. 
You know, we see these movies and there's these huge fights between the forces of good and the forces of evil. You know, the good guy versus the bad guy, the religious guy against the demonic force. And they're fighting it out. And it's a, I mean, it's a hard fight. Who's going to win? There's no fight here. None. Zero. They know they've lost. They know they have, had, they have no power. All they're doing is saying, if you're going to cast us out of these people, please put us in something else. See some pigs over there? Jesus, you're obviously not here to protect the pigs or to save the pigs. We'll let you have the people. Let us have the pigs. Okay? It seems kind of strange, but somehow the demonic forces prefer occupying a physical being so that they can work within this realm. And they figure, we go into the pigs, Jesus leaves, the pigs are roaming around, we find some other shepherd, we go grabbing pig herder, we go into him, life is good. We just have to wait for Jesus to leave. It's a plan, right? And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, I spent some time this week. I really did think about this. This just shows you the depth of the stupid things that I think about. Envision you're a pig. We just stop right there, right? Envision you're a pig, and all of a sudden, this demonic force comes into you. This demonic force comes, and you don't have any, well, you're not a human being. You don't have any salvation potential. You're just a pig, you're an animal, and now you are consumed by this demonic being. And your only goal, your only desire is to get rid of it. And you see the body of water, probably the Sea of Galilee, and you just run right into it and you just drown. Because you know that this demonic force has controlled you and there's nothing you can do about it. I had a whole interesting discussion with myself about the distinction between the humans being demon-possessed, and the pigs being demon-possessed. God still had a plan for the humans, and they survived. Yes? No, the demons didn't drown. They returned to the spiritual world, okay? I mean, the demons are spiritual beings, okay? So they're, wherever spiritual beings are, the same way that angels are. But we know that they occupy, they possess material beings when they have the opportunity. Yes, Van. We have no idea. We know that they're going to be in their right mind here in just a moment. Okay? We know that. What they did immediately, I don't know. Okay? 
So, the pigs rushed into the lake. Now, you are a swine herder, pig farmer. You're sitting there with your 2,000 pigs. We're told 2,000 over in the Mark and Luke account. That's a lot of pigs, okay? We're not just talking a few pigs. That's a lot of pigs. You go, wait a minute. There were two people, two demons. No, if you remember the story over in uh, Mark and Luke, Jesus asked, what is your name? To the demon. And the demon says, we are legion because there's a boatload of us. So there were probably at least 2,000. Just speculating. So you're a pig farmer, and all of a sudden, your entire livelihood just ran into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. What is your response? What are you going to do? The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everyone, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why would they do that? Let's look at the value here, okay? I have two. Two men who were demon-possessed and are now whole. And I have 2,000 pigs that are dead. Where would we place our value? Where would we decide that this was a better-than-fair trade because two souls were saved? But you know what? We tend to look at economic value. I don't know, have any idea what the price of a pig was in this area at this point in time. But 2,000 pigs to me sounds like a lot of stuff. And they lost a lot of stuff. And the people came out and they could have rejoiced because two human beings were healed. Instead, they looked at the loss of revenue and they go, oh shoot, we don't want this happening on a regular basis. What is he going to do next? Go after the chickens? What is he going to do next? Go after our camels? What is he going to I have no idea what he's going to do, but whatever it is that's bad, let's get rid of him. Let's ask him very nicely to leave. Why would you ask him very nicely? Because you have no idea who he is, but you know that he tells demons to leave and they leave, and they were terrified of him. The disciples in the boat were terrified when Jesus turned to the storm and said, Stop! And it did. But they wanted to be with him. This guy may be scaring the bejeebers out of us, but we want to be on his side. The people in this community saw the power of Jesus and they wanted nothing to do with it. Let's get rid of him. Let's ask him nicely to get out of the town. Yes. Uh-huh. Was it 
Yeah, we, we, the, this story says that the herdsmen, the people watching the... I mean, I, I envision this, okay, if you're just picturing this in your mind. Up on the side of the hill is the graveyard. And that's where the demon-possessed people are. Then down by the river, I mean the lake, far away from that are the pigs. But probably close enough that you can see them. And the pigs are being watched by the swine herders, the pig farmers who are just sitting around doing nothing. I mean, it's just a normal day. We know that Jesus had a group of people following him. We have a handful of disciples. We're going to get the rest of them in the next chapter. But we have a handful of disciples, or the next chapter. And so he's got people watching him. Now, in the Mark and Luke account, which are much longer accounts, it does record a dialogue between Jesus and the demons themselves, this, who are you? We are legion. Matthew, if anything, is giving us a condensed version because he has one point here. His main point is that Jesus can command the demons. He has the authority over them. So there's more discussion in the Mark and Luke account. In fact, in the Mark and Luke account, one of the demon-possessed men who was cured who was relieved of his demon, wants to come with Jesus. Please take me with you. And what does Jesus tell him? No, stay. You've got people to witness to over here. And just as an aside, it's kind of interesting. As a general rule, I wouldn't find every single case, but as a general rule, when Jesus is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he performs a miracle, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. Because he knows that eventually he's going to come to blows with the officials, and he doesn't want to do it yet. When he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he does a miracle, he says, go tell everybody. So he tells the demon-possessed man, go tell everybody what has happened to you. That's why you need to stay. There's actually some interesting principle here in the sense that when you become a believer, personally, I like the idea of just zap, you go to heaven. I mean, that kind of appeals to me, right? But Jesus has something for you to do. Go tell people that you were demon-possessed, that you were living among the tombs, that you were scaring the bejeebers out of people, and now Jesus healed you. That's what you're supposed to go tell people. So the villagers, having been contacted by the pig farmers, come out and say, wow, the pigs are all gone. My perverse mind, I'm sitting going, you know, pigs bobbing in the water. (laughs) What can I say? And they look at that. They look at the two guys sitting over there minding their own business. They look at Jesus and his crowd, and they say, we don't understand any of this. We don't like it. Would you mind just keep moving on? And as I said, my impression is they told him politely because they were scared to death of him. Those demons were somewhere, and if Jesus can tell them where to go, I have no idea. (laughs) Yes.
And that was and that was the discussion I was having with myself this week. His observation is if a demon possessed any animal, would that animal attempt to kill himself? And I have no earthly idea. But it is an interesting discussion because of the fact that I'm going to step on some bad toes here. The animal is not a spiritual being. Okay, there are those who believe their dogs have, but I'm not going to go there. I mean, I actually told you all one time, there's a long discussion about whether dogs go to heaven. I have no idea. I do know my cat is going to hell. I'm just saying. There's no... There's no theology behind that at all. But there is an interesting discussion, as you're leading to, that I don't know the difference between a human being who is possessed by a demon. Now, the human being is a spiritual being and a physical being, and there is that conflict between the spirit and the spirit and the physical No doubt they were trying to harm themselves, cutting and that kind of thing. That could obviously be part of a demon possession. We don't have enough record of animals being demon-possessed to know what the normal is. All we know is that this group of pigs encountered this group of demons and wanted nothing to do with it. That we know for a fact. That was the speculation that I was having all week. Yes, Right. The, the, the angel went into the donkey and said, I need to have a discussion with you. And that would get your attention, right? If you're, the donkey didn't kill him, but he had an angel, not a demon. There's a distinction there. Yes. Right. his observation was that all the feral pigs in uh, Texas need to be demon possessed and run into the Gulf of Mexico I'm not going there then what what would all the hunters in the helicopters do I mean And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The question for all of us is, when we see Jesus at work, do we get terrified and welcome it? Or do we get terrified and tell him to go away? That's the choice. The the apostles saw it, were terrified and said, whatever it is, I want to be there when it happens. And the people, so they saw their economic system being threatened, and they go, and eh, no, why don't you go find someplace else to do your miracles? And getting in the boat, this is chapter 9, verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. That would be Capernaum at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic 
lying on a bed. Once again, you remember the other stories of this within the Bible? They actually brought him. There was a crowd of people. He was inside a house. They couldn't get to him. So they climb up onto the roof. The houses of the time would have flat roofs, and people would oftentimes sleep in there, up there, when it was the right time of the year because it was cooler than being in the house. So you might have some stairs going up. They carted him up on the roof. They removed the roof above him, the ceiling roof, and they lowered him down to get him to Jesus. Great discussion about it's good to have friends. They brought the paralytic to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he goes, wow, they've gone to a lot of trouble to bring this guy to me. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. You've got some nasty medical condition. Your friends take you to the hospital. You need immediate surgery or you're going to die. And you go in and the surgeon walks up to him and goes, it's amazing that they brought you here. Your sins are forgiven. Well, that may all be well and good, but I need a surgery. But what did this man really need? What do any of us really need? We need Jesus to tell us our sins are forgiven. Jesus knows what we really need. We know what we think we need. What he thought he needed was to be able to walk. What he really needed was to be right with God. We confuse that so often in so many different ways. We go to Jesus with all kinds of things that we just have to have. And Jesus says, what you really need is to have your sins forgiven. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves... Remember, remember the picture that I've been saying from the beginning. Jesus is doing his thing. And on the periphery are the scribes and the Pharisees taking notes. Okay? What is he doing? Is he a threat? Is he going to bring the Romans down on us? Do we need to zap him now or are we going to zap him tomorrow? And they hear this. And they're on the periphery. And they're talking among themselves. And they say, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And you know what? They're right. If Jesus is just a man. I can come up to you and tell you your sins are forgiven. But I have no authority to forgive your sins. I have no power to actually forgive Your sin. Why? What did David say? He had messed up with Bathsheba. He had bumped off her husband. And he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. All of our sin is an affront to God. If you do something to me, I can forgive you for doing that. Or not. But only God can forgive sin. So if a human being is telling this man your sin is forgiven and that human being is simply a human being, then this scribe is correct 
It is blasphemy. Because what does he say? He's saying, I'm God. And the people may not know this, but the scribes and the Pharisees who have been reading the Bible, they know this. This guy just stated blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, as I said, they're back there amongst themselves talking, but Jesus is aware of what they're talking. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, let me ask you a nice question of physics, okay? Without the aid of any rocket or any mechanical device of any sort, unaided by any device, which is easier for you to do? Jump to the moon or jump to Mars? Now, at some theoretical level, you'd have to say it's easier to jump to the moon because it's a whole lot closer. But as a practical matter, you don't have a chance to do either one. You can't do either of them. So Jesus turns to the scribes and says, which is harder, to tell this person your sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk? Now, the words are easy to say. Oh, yeah, your sins are forgiven. I can go there and tell you that all day long, and I could be lying to you or not, okay, depending on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that's forgiving the sins. Or I can tell you to be healed. The words are easy. But for those words to have an effect, that's outside the realm of possibility for these disciples, for the scribes, for any of them, for anybody that was in existence at that point. I might as well ask you to just jump to the moon. Wait for it to be a full moon, because then it's a bigger target, right? Oh, wait a minute. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, they're a little confused, because they think that he's still a man who's been given authority to do this. But he's God, who by his very nature has the authority to do this. We had a very brief discussion last week, and I just want to remind ourselves of it. Why is Jesus doing any of these miracles? The healings, the casting out the demons, the telling the water to stop. He's doing it. He's doing it so that his authority is recognized by everyone. That's what they saw. He has the power to tell the sick man to get up and walk. Maybe he also has the power to tell us that our sins are forgiven. Now, we've got to get to the next section because it's tax week, right? (laughs) 
And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Okay? Let me tell you what a good Jew at the time would have done if he saw a man sitting at the tax booth. He'd spit and walk away. I mean, we're talking the most hated people in the country. Now, today, if it wasn't Sunday, would be tax day. Tomorrow would be tax day, since today can't, except for, why is it tomorrow tax day? Come on. It's Emancipation Day, when Lincoln freed the slaves, which happens to be a holiday in, I think, Washington, D.C. So, Tuesday is actually tax day. Okay? You all done your taxes? I did mine yesterday. Which got me thinking about doing taxes. We need to understand the position of this character named Matthew, who, by the way, is the author of the book. He is describing his first encounter with Jesus. So let's imagine, if you will, we're not going to discuss politics at all, not at all, not in the least, but let's say that Caesar was in charge of the United States today. Okay? Well, Caesar is sitting there, and he needs money to run the government. If we have the, appropriate, the type of government we have right now, he needs about $4 trillion to run the government. So he goes to a friend of his, and the friend says, I'll tell you what, I will pay you, Caesar, not the government, I will pay you $10 billion if you let me collect the taxes in Texas. This is the way the system worked. Caesar says, great, give me the $10 million. You go collect taxes in Texas. Now, given the relative size of the state of Texas, if I need $4 trillion, we need Texas to generate $357 billion of taxes. So this guy bought the right to collect the taxes in Texas. So he has to collect $357 billion to pay the taxes. He also has to collect $10 billion to pay off the money that he gave Caesar, and he's doing this to make money, so let's say he wants to collect an extra $50 billion to pad his own pocket. This is how it worked. This is how the system worked. I would buy the right to collect taxes, which would allow me to go to the region and collect taxes, and I get to really collect all that I want. So he's in charge of collecting taxes in Texas, and he says, okay, Tarrant County, I need uh, $40 billion from Tarrant County. So he sends a guy to Tarrant County, and the guy in Tarrant County says, okay, I'm going to collect $40 billion, but I'm really going to collect $410 billion because I'm going to pocket the other 10. Okay? He hires some schmuck named Matthew to sit on the corner and collect taxes. And Matthew can collect all the taxes he can. Why would you pay them? Well, because behind Matthew is a Roman soldier. And you don't want to mess with the Roman soldier. They're not nice. They've got a sword, and if they stab you to death with it, nobody's ever going to hold it against them. Ever. And if you decide to go beat up that Roman soldier... Well, a big group of Roman soldiers will park at one end of the street and at the other end of the street, and they'll say, turn over the guy that did it. And if you do, they'll kill him right there on the spot. 
they'll crucify him. If you don't, they'll just kill everybody on the street. End of the story. Why would they pick Matthew to do this? Well, they needed a local who actually knew the people, knew where the wealth was hiding, so they would hire a local person. What do you think the people on the street thought about this guy? They hated him. He was working for the bad guys. He was taking their money. He was getting rich off of them. It was a bad situation all around. But he had to collect the money to pay the guy that was collecting the money for taxes in Tarrant County and pay the taxes in the state of Texas and pay Caesar who's running the whole show. There was a limit, though, about how much taxes he could collect. Rome didn't want a riot. They didn't want a rebellion. So it's like it's up to you to squeeze as much money as you can without actually causing an outright rebellion because that would cost us money and that would look bad on the governor. So we're not going to do that. That's why later when Jesus is brought before the governor, the governor really doesn't want anything to do with this. He doesn't care about this. But when they say that he's not a friend of Rome, of Caesar, then all of a sudden, rebellion, bad, killing. End of story. We need to understand that Rome viewed all these provinces, Galilee, all of these provinces, as cash cows. That's all they were. How can I extract wealth from them and give it to Rome? And Matthew was the guy collecting it. And Jesus walks up to Matthew. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Exactly. They were not good guys. I mean, they were an occupying power there to extract wealth. That's what they were there for. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, you're Jesus. You're walking down the street. Here's a scribe, very educated person probably well-known in the community. I could have told him to follow me. Maybe he would have come. If he did, all these good connections. Life would have been good. Here's this average Joe. At least nobody hates him. I mean, he may be a fisherman, for goodness sake, but at least nobody hates him. Instead, he walks up to Matthew, the guy in the tax booth, the guy with the Roman soldier behind him, and he says, follow me. Now, you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? They said he spoke as one who had authority. Jesus walked up to him, looked him in the eye, and said, follow me. And guess what? We have no indication that he went and consulted with his parents, that he went and talked with his friends, that he went through all the proper decision-making process that you ought to go through before you make a major decision in your life. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? And he rose and followed him. Jesus, a good Jewish 
rabbi. He is a teacher. He walks up, looks him in the eye and says, follow me. And he looks at him and he closes his book. He tells the Roman soldier to take the book and off he goes. Why? Because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. But look what happens next. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors, this is Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You get the picture, right? Matthew called all of his friends and said, let me tell you who I just found. First off, he talked to me. He talked kindly to me. He's at my house. I've heard about what he's been doing. Come meet him. This is fascinating because Statistics tell us that when somebody converts to Christ, within two years, they have very few unbelieving friends. They get used to going to church. They get used to this community. They hang around with other Christians, which is a great thing to do, by the way. But they lose contact with the people who need to hear the gospel. You know, you could have understood if Matthew said, Okay, I'm with Jesus and I'm with his friends. I'll run over here with them and not let my old friends know what happened. No, he invites them all to dinner. It's a fabulous thing, except for the fact that you're a Jewish rabbi eating with a bunch of tax collectors. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's gives? I mean, if you're going to build a movement within the Jewish community, you need to get rid of this riffraff. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we're going to pick up right there next week. What's your question? Maybe or maybe not. We'll talk about that next week. Her question is, is this actually in chronological order? And I actually made the the discussion last week that Matthew does have a tendency, oh, oh, we're going to talk about authority. Let's put together some stories that talk about healing to demonstrate his authority. Oh, we're going to do parables. Let's put together some parables and group them. It's a topical Bible study. So the chronology is probably a little better over in Mark and Luke. But we won't worry about it too much. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you do have the authority, that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the scribes and the Pharisees, that we would, in fact, welcome those who welcome you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.